You're listening to audio from City Light South Church. If you'd like to check out more resources and find ways to get involved, go to citylightsouth.org.au. I'm going to pray and then we're going to jump into the, the message for today. Lord, thank you that we are here this morning in your presence, that you woke us up, Lord, with your new mercies again this morning. I pray that we would have eyes to see what those are and ears to hear what you would have to say to us through your word this morning. Lord, would you help me speak clearly? Would you speak only the things that are true and necessary? Would they just land on our ears and and, and our hearts that we might be changed, that we might be more like Jesus um, than when we came in today? And we pray this all in his name. Amen. All right. So this is the part in the gathering this morning that I tell you I'm about to talk about money. And I don't know how that sits with you. Um, we actually don't do it that often, despite um, stereotypes, and, and uh, we, we don't do it that often, but we've got the annual family meeting coming up, and so I want to preface that a little bit um, with what is the foundation for generosity? What is the foundation for giving? Why do we do it? What does the Bible actually say? How do we develop an attitude towards money that is shaped by the scriptures and not by the culture around us. It isn't just a reaction to whatever our own financial situation happens to be. The question we're exploring today, specifically in our Do I Have To series, is this. Do I have to tithe? Now, some of you may not know what that word means because it's a church word. Um, if you've been a Christian for a while, you've probably heard it before. If, if you've never heard the word tithe before, that's okay. Here's what a tithe is. A tithe is like a tax. It's like a tax. It's a percentage of your income or a percentage of your assets that in parts of the Bible, you would see God's people required then to take that percentage, 10% of your income or 10% of your assets or your produce and set it aside and give it to God or to the work of God. That's what a tithe is. The tithe shows up in different places in the Bible. The first place it shows up is in Genesis chapter 14. Where Abraham, if you remember his story, he, he goes to rescue his cousin or his nephew, Lot, and uh, he wins this battle and he comes back victorious from the battle. And he's not alone. He's got all this spoil with him, plunder from the victory. And when he returns back to the place where he set out from, he meets a, this mysterious priest-king figure, a guy called Melchizedek. And Melchizedek blesses Abraham and tells him that it was God who enabled him to win the victory. And in response, what does Abraham do? He gives Melchizedek a tithe, 10% of everything that he has. He gives it to Melchizedek. That incident that actually happened in history is just written down, recorded in the Bible without comment. There's no explanation as to why he did that. He wasn't under compulsion. He chose to give him 10%, to give him 10% of the victory spoils. Later on, Genesis 28, Abraham's grandson, Jacob, he falls asleep and has a dream. And in that dream, God speaks to him and promises that he will give him all of the land of Canaan, the land that he's just been traveling through. He promised Jacob, who was on a journey to find a wife, he he promised to make his journey successful. And then when Jacob wakes up, he makes his own promise to God. He says, God, if that's really true, 
If you really will give me this land, if you really do make my journey successful and I get back home safely, then I'm going to give you a tithe. I'm going to give you 10% of everything that I have. God, not surprisingly, kept his promise to Jacob. Jacob got married. He found a wife. He had kids. And then he came back safely to his father's house. And around 400 years later, we know that Jacob's descendants, his family, had multiplied into this massive clan of tens of thousands of people. And they were in Egypt, and they were enslaved in Egypt. And then God sends Moses to rescue them and bring them out and into the land that he had promised Jacob 400 years earlier. And when they enter the land, Moses tells them now is the time to make good on the promise that Jacob made, to give a tithe, to give 10%. And not just once, but every year, every year that you are in this land that I'm giving you, that God is giving you, you will give 10% of your produce, 10% of your livestock will be set aside and given to God. And, and what that meant was that, that uh, those goods were given then to the priests, to the Levites, the people who worked for God, their, um, were in the service of God in the temple. And this was to happen every year, no exceptions. Now fast forward another thousand years. By that stage, God's people had already been kicked out of the land. Why? Because they didn't keep their end of the bargain. They broke their agreement with God. And God sends them into exile, and they spend 70 years there in Babylon. And then he brings them graciously back to the very same land to reestablish the covenant with him. And they promise that they'll keep his laws. But then once again, they fail. They fail to keep their promise. And then God sends another prophet, a man by the name of Malachi. He comes on the scene, and he reminds people that they once again, that they've broken their end of the deal. They've broken their promise to God. And the specific charge that Malachi brings to the people, he tells them that they are robbing God. What does he mean? Well, they'd forgotten the tithe. They'd forgotten to give 10% of the produce, 10% of their livestock, 10% of their goods. And instead, they were clinging to everything they had uh, for themselves. But instead of God just expelling them, kicking them out of the land again, he disciplines them. And he he tells them that if you change, if you repent, if you are generous with the tithe, God says, I will open the floodgates of heaven and pour out blessing on you without measure. God says, if you remember to give the tithe, he'll make them so fruitful that the other nations around them will see it And they'll be like, oh, that's very interesting. Throughout the history of God's people in what we know as the Old Testament in the Bible, we see two recurring, almost competing themes that explain what the stories that I've just laid out to you. We see this, number one, nobody can outgive God. God is the primary and best giver. From the very beginning, God gives and he provides generously for his people every single day. That's what the Garden of Eden was all about in Genesis chapter 2. Every tree, he tells us, every plant is given to us for food and to enjoy. Everywhere that Adam looked, there was abundance 
and fruit and goodness. Abundant evidence that God loves us, that God is good, that he's a giver. Abundant reasons to be happy and to be thankful. Abraham's tithe, Jacob's tithe. See, these were spontaneous, joyful responses to the abundant giving of God. God is the the first mover here. He's the one who gives, and the tithe is a response. We give back a small portion of what he's given to us. That's the first theme. Nobody can outgive God. Second theme is this. We humans seem to be never content with what we have and with our own limitations. We see that right at the beginning as well. God said to Adam, every tree, every tree is yours except one. And so what's the one thing that they want? It's the one thing they can't have. And we're, we're, we're really similar. You, you may not, you know, there may be something that you've never thought once in your life that you, might, that you want or desire until someone tells you you can't have it. And then you want it. That's just human nature. God, when he forbid them to eat the fruit from one tree, the serpent then comes along and he speaks to Eve, the woman, and says, you know what? God isn't as good as you think he is. The reason he's not letting you have that is because he knows it's good for you. He knows that if you eat that fruit, you'll be like him. You will have unlimited potential unlocked. Unlimited power, unlimited delight. See, we're, we're never content with the limitations. That's why Eve and then Adam ate the fruit. If you think about the Israelites in the day of Malachi when he came and said that you were robbing God by not giving the tithe, why? Why were, why were they not giving the tithe? Why were they holding on so tightly to what they had? Well, it wasn't long before Malachi came on the scene that the people were in exile. The people had no power. They were oppressed. They were vulnerable. They knew what that was like. And they were more committed to saying, we will never go back there. We will never willingly enter into poverty. We will never willingly be vulnerable. What's ours is ours. And Malachi comes and says, you're robbing God, but in actual fact, and we'll see this in a moment, they're actually robbing themselves of the opportunity to trust the goodness of God. Nobody can outgive God. Nobody. But then for us humans, even what God gives us will never feel like enough. Here's what God knows about us He knows that when we give regularly, when we give to others, that turns our eyes back to his generosity, back to contentment. Regular giving frees us, you and me, it frees us from worry and angst that what we have just isn't enough. The tithe requirement was not, it never was, about giving God a handout as if God had applied for Centrelink and and here we are, to provide what he lacks. No. 
The tithe was a regular ritual for the Israelites, for his people, because we humans so easily forget just how generous he is. The Israelites waited for 400 years from the time of Jacob to actually inheriting the land. But as, as almost as soon as they settled down in this bountiful land that God gave them, he, they forgot. They, 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 they forgot their own history. They forgot God. They started worshiping idols. They started treating each other horribly. They started worrying and competing for what they thought were limited resources. But yet, the tithe ensured that every year when the harvest came in, every family would do the same thing. They would have to lay aside 10% to tithe, to, to give away. And it was, it was like smelling salts, if you like, for them. They, they woke up and, they, you know, God's saying, snap out of it. Guys, everything that you have, everything you see around you, isn't because you worked hard for it. It's because I am a generous giver and I love you. God is an abundant giver. And when you remember that, it changes how you think and how you live. It changes how you feel about what you have and what you don't have. Ritual has a way of reminding us of what's true. It's why we, and we've talked about this even recently, why we, we celebrate communion every single week. Because we forget. We walk out the door and we forget the sacrifice of Jesus for us. And so we come back again to the table week after week after week. That was true for the Israelites with the tithe. Year after year after year, they come back and remember again the generosity of God. So what about us? So that's, that was the Old Testament. That was then. What about now? Do we have to tithe every, is, and is it once a year? Is it every week? What, what, what are we required to do? Um, are we required to calculate 10% of our income, and before tax or after tax, and then, and then give it to who? To, to the church? Uh, to, to charity? What, help us. Let's, we want to understand here. Um, do I have to tithe based on what we just laid out in the Old Testament? You might be thinking where I'm going that I'm going to say yes. And if you were you know, playing, a, if this was a game show and you just locked in your answer without phoning a friend, you'd be wrong. Because the answer is, uh, it's, it's actually quite simple. The answer is no. Hey, wait a minute, no. I want to um, direct you to a, um, an article by, written by someone a lot smarter than me um, who has written an article called Seven Reasons Christians Are Not Required to Tithe by um, a professor of mine, a guy called Tom Schreiner. And I'm just going to list the seven reasons now because like, you can read the article if you want to dig deeper into it. Um, here they are. Number one, Christians don't have to tithe because we are no longer under the law of Moses. The tithe, remember, Abraham and Jacob, they tithed um, out of the just goodness of their hearts. Not, well, not inherent goodness, but it was a spontaneous response to the God's, God's generosity. The law of Moses came later, and we're no longer under the law of Moses. Second reason, the examples of Abraham and Jacob are unique, and they're not normative for us. They're descriptive, not prescriptive. Third, tithes were given to the priests and the Levites, and there are no priests and Levites today. So I'm not a priest, not a Levite, so you don't tithe to support my wage, in the sense. Um, tithes were tied to the promised land of Israel. The land was not given to us. We're not in that land today. If you do the math, 
This is the fifth reason. The Old Testament tithe, because there was the yearly tithe, then there was the festival tithes, and then there was a spontaneous thank offering tithe. It was actually probably closer to 20%, not 10. And not many people are advocating that. Sixth thing he says is that Jesus affirmed the tithe. He did. He talked about, you know, the Pharisees who tithe their spices. But that was before the new covenant kicked in and we're no longer under the old covenant. And then last reason, tithing is never directly commanded in the New Testament, and that's true. And that's what I want to focus on, that last reason, that tithing is never directly commanded in the New Testament. I'm going to spend the rest of the message just unpacking that point. Um, it would be easier, I think, for, for me or for us, if we came to the, the, the Bible, the New Testament, and there was just a, a direct command, thou shalt give to thy local church. It's not there. I've looked. It's not there. Um, Jamie Dunlop is a pastor who wrote a book about church budgets, which I'm sure you'd all love to read in your spare time. He said, Jesus talked a lot about money. It's true. And we might expect that as the New Testament transitions to the epistles' instructions to us Christians, that we would see letters filled with, thou shalt give to thy local church commands, but we don't. So what do we see? What do we see in the New Testament? Well, it's a bit like we saw with the Sabbath. It, it, instead of a rule that is binding on all Christians everywhere that says, thou shalt not work or thou shalt go to church every Sunday, we see a principle about the importance and goodness of rest and worship and gathering. When we see how the Sabbath points us back to Jesus, who is the Lord of the Sabbath, we see the importance of generosity. Schreiner says, when Christians are instructed to give to the poor, they aren't commanded to give the poor tithe. Instead, they're instructed to be generous in helping those in need. So tithing is never directly commanded in the New Testament. But since it was such an important feature of life for God's people in the Old Testament, it's important to ask, why not? I think the reason the tithe isn't commanded in the New Testament has everything to do with our own relationship to rules. It's really been what this whole series has been about. Because following a rule, ticking a box, can become the main thing. It can become the end goal. And when, that's hap when that happens, we forget why the rule exists in the first place. We forget the one who gave us the rule. If you remember the parable of the Good Samaritan, we talked about that a couple of weeks ago. Um, there was the lawyer that came up and he, he questioned Jesus. He says, you all know, he's, you, we all know the rule to love your neighbor, right? We know that. That's a rule. Jesus said that's an, you know, one of the most important commandments. But then the lawyer comes up and says, but, but wait a minute. Who is my neighbor? Who is my neighbor? Surely, surely you can't mean everybody. Surely you can't mean that person. Surely you can't mean somebody that I've never met on the other side of the world. And Jesus responds with the story of the Good Samaritan, and say, who, you know, a man who had no obligation to be merciful and yet was merciful. And he says, go and do the same. See, we can take a rule like love your neighbor and we can start looking for the loopholes. The reasons why we, you know, it's, it's the same, we do the same thing with our taxes, right? It's, it's the whole, we, you know, it's built into our tax code tax offsets and deductions, and we're all scrambling and looking for ways we can, you know, make our tax bill as low as possible. Imagine if that's how we treated giving in the church. The clear command in the New Testament isn't to give a particular percentage. It's to be generous with our own money 
and generous with our own assets. Now, it's not about ticking a box, but it's a whole posture. It's a whole posture. We sang an old hymn just a minute ago. Here's a line from another one. And this is, I think, that captures well the heart of Christian generosity. It says this, Take my silver and my gold, not a mite would I withhold. Take myself and I will be ever only all for thee. See, the law of the tithe says 10% for God, 90% for me. The law of Christian generosity says 100%. I'm all in. All my chips for God. You see the difference? Now, I want to turn to some practical examples of how generosity works in the church because you might, have, you might think, oh, am I, am I literally meant to give all of my disposable income to the church? No. The New Testament, though, is flooded with examples of how generosity works. Not commands as such, but examples. Um, if you remember the passage from Acts 2 we looked at recently, the very first Christians who responded to the very first gospel sermon ever preached they responded by immediately going and getting baptized. You saw that last week. And they started gathering together daily around gospel preaching, fellowship, communion, and prayer. You know what else they did? These same group, these same early believers, we read in the same text that they sold their possessions and their property and they distributed the proceeds to all as any had need. Later on in Acts chapter 4, um, the church had single-handedly, at least in their community, abolished poverty. How did they do it? They got rid of private property. It's, it's a bit scary. They said, if anybody has a need, this isn't, this, what we have, it, we've received it from God, so what we have is now yours. It's, it's ours. It's not mine, it's ours. That's how the early church lived in response to the gospel. They saw that as a direct response, a direct implication of the generosity of God. Their eyes were so locked on Jesus and everything that he had done that they're saying, how can I cling on to anything, especially when I see a need? The command to be generous, what we might call the law of love, it's about reflecting the heart of God in everything we do in how we spend our money, our time, how we speak. How you spend your money is a declaration of what you value, of, of what you treasure, of what you think is most important. I want to challenge us, and, and particularly if you grew up, you know, with the sort of the 10% figure, the benchmark sort of in your mind, I want to challenge our thinking by looking at a somewhat familiar story, another story that Jesus told. And it, it captures what Jesus commended as the heart of Christian generosity. This is what generosity is meant to look like. And it's challenging to me. And I think it'll be challenging in a good way to all of us. So we're going to be in the Gospel of Mark just really briefly. Um, Mark chapter 12. It's up on the screen behind me. Um, this is the story of the widow's gift. Mark records these words, starting in verse 41. It says, Sitting across from the temple treasury, he, that's Jesus, watched how the crowd dropped money into the treasury. 
Many rich people were putting in large sums. Then a poor widow came and dropped in two tiny coins worth very little. Summoning his disciples, he said to them, Truly, I tell you, this poor widow has put in more into the treasury than all the others. For they gave out of their surplus, but she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. The story, it... It's a powerful one. It, it speaks for itself. It's recorded here in Mark as well as in Luke 21. Um, I don't know if you've ever been on the receiving end of someone's generosity that you think, man, I, I don't know if that person really has extra to spare, and yet they've just given me this gift, or they've given me their time, or they've given me encouragement, or whatever it is. But Man, if you have been in that position, it, it probably impacted you. And I can think of one time for me, it happened to me when I was 15. I was, um, had been asked to be a part of an evangelistic trip overseas. I'd never left the country before, um, grew up in America, um, and this was going to be to Russia. And this was in 1995. It was four years after the collapse of the Soviet Union. It was one of the, one of the first groups of American high school students who were going to Russia specifically to connect with, build friendship with Russian teenagers and share the gospel. And the cost for me to participate in this trip was $3,000. And for me, it was like, I, like for me, that it felt like winning, like winning the lottery. Like, I, I will never be able to afford $3,000. That's how it felt. Um, my family did have some friends and acquaintances who were wealthy. Um, I remember my dad saying, you know, giving me a few names of people that he knew, business contacts and friends that I could um, write to and explain what I was doing. And I, and I remember one check coming in the mail from someone I'd never met for $500. And I was blown away. Um, but then right towards the end, I was, was about getting ready to go, I got another check in the mail from uh, an aunt of mine who I knew, it's a Christian lady I'd grown up with and spent time with. Um, she's a lovely lady, still alive, 96 years old. Um, and she, she sent me a very sweet note of encouragement and a check for $5. Now, if you've ever been a part of a fundraising campaign where they do those little like thermometers of, you know, see how close we are to the goal, like that $5 would not have moved the needle. It wouldn't have been noteworthy in any worldly economic scale. And for me, as a 15-year-old, that was the gift that I knew that God wanted me to be on this trip. I knew because I knew it was a sacrifice for her. And what is worth very little to a rich person or in the eyes of the world has infinite value to God. Just like the two small copper coins, enough to give a young person a clear glimpse into the generous heart of God. You can't put a price on that. So with the poor widow from Jesus' story in mind, I want to give you just four kind of takeaways that I hope will encourage you and challenge you to have the generous heart of God. I, I, I want to point out that none of these takeaways are focused on needs. It's not 
we don't see this in the Scripture with Jesus or Paul or anybody holding up the needs and saying, look at the needs, look at how great they are, please, give to this, give to that, give to this. There are needs. But what we see in the New Testament, what we see is the apostles holding up the heart of God and saying, look at how generous our God is. Isn't that good? So I, I want you to, again, look at the way Jesus engages with the woman. Well, he doesn't even engage with her personally, but look at the way he tells the story. If you want to have the generous heart of God, number one, give to be seen by God alone. Give to be seen by God alone. That's what the widow did. She didn't announce her presence there in the temple. She didn't announce her gift. I mean, why would she, given her situation? She had two tiny coins worth a fraction of a cent. But Jesus saw her from a distance. And what she did in the eyes of the world was just completely unnoteworthy, even pathetic. But to Jesus, what she did was indescribably beautiful. And when I say give to be seen by God alone, I'm not saying that nobody can ever know. I'm not advocating some kind of false humility. Or, you know, it's, it's okay to discuss with other people what you're giving to church or mission or, or, or compassion or charity or whatever um, within your family. It's, it's fine if your goal is to encourage others to be generous as well or to ask for help in that area if it's, if it's a struggle for you. But your goal should never be to impress people. Remember, you can never outgive God. That, that should humble us when we give. Even if we have plenty of opportunity, even if we have plenty of extra, it's an opportunity that we have to, to live and give sacrificially like Him, to be like Him. That's the goal. Second, if you want to have the generous heart of God, give to be reminded what it is you treasure most. Jesus pointed out to his disciples that the widow gave everything she had to live on. Everything she had. Maybe that was what she had for that week. Maybe it was what she had for the rest of that growing season. We, we don't know. We do know that whatever she gave, the amount she gave, was stupidly sacrificial. The question is, why? Why did she do it? Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, he said, Where, wherever your treasure is, whatever your treasure is, that's where your heart is. That's what has captured your heart. And the physical act of taking an object of value, be it money or anything else, and letting go of that, and laying that at the feet of God, or putting it in a collection box, or whatever it looks like. That physical act, there's something about doing that that actually helps us to release our affections and have those things release their grip on our hearts. That's what the widow does. She's in the temple, the very house of God, and as her hands let go of those two tiny coins, she's saying, I am all in, my heart is all in with God, because if I don't have him, I have nothing. And yet, with him, I have everything. Which brings me to the third takeaway. Give to learn how to rely on God and his people. So one of the biggest obstacles to generosity for some of us is that we 
a lot of us have rarely been in situations where we really, really have to rely on the generosity of other people. Um, I, I can testify to you that the season that I learned the most about how to be a friend was when I didn't have any. I had moved to a new place. And I had to rely on other people to be kind. I had to uh, rely on other people to invite me to things and include me in things. So you can ask God to teach you generosity. And when you do, he might put you in a spot where you need to rely on the generosity of others. And, and that's uncomfortable for us. We'd rather God make me generous. And we want God to just pour money into our laps or pour time into our laps that we could just give away and be the hero of the story. And yet... Often, when we pray to God to make us generous, He actually puts us in a situation where we first have to depend on others to be generous to us. Paul boasted, not in his strength or in his excess or his disposable income. He, dis he boasted in his weakness. He wasn't shy to tell people that he was in need. Not because he was greedy and shaking people down for money. Not because he felt entitled to it. But he actually saw the church as an actual family. See, I think Jesus pointed out the generous widow, well, one of the reasons he did, to the disciples is because he knew that one day there were going to be hundreds, thousands of widows like her who would come to the church and need to be loved and cared for and seen by people who might otherwise overlook them. And guess what? From day one, from day one, it's, you know, you get to Acts chapter six and the very first people, the first staff that were hired by the church, the deacons, if you were, what was their job? It was to care for widows who had, were potentially going to be overlooked. See, all of us have something to give. And when we give sacrificially, we learn how to rely on God and the church to meet our needs for love and sustenance and connection. Last takeaway is this. If you want to have the generous heart of God, and this is counterintuitive, but give in order to gain. Give in order to gain. See, the widow gave all she had to live on, not because she was a fool, but because she knew that giving to God was the pathway to joy and abundance. Now, I want to clarify this because there's some bad teaching on this topic out here, out there. There are the prosperity teachers who will tell you that if you tithe, if you drop seed money into the offering, that you're just, you're, your finances are just going to blow up and you're going to be wealthy beyond your wildest dreams. No. That's karma. That's not gospel. Okay? There is not a sort of one-for-one -one kind of promise that if we put the coin in the God vending machine that, you know, physical healing or wealth is going to pop out. No, that, that's not scriptural. There is, though, a truth that's sort of hidden within the lie, and it's this. Um, when Paul, you see this in Philippians chapter 4, Paul is saying thank you to the Philippian church because the Philippian church, and they're not a rich, they're not a wealthy church, they're actually quite a, a working-class group of people. And he's, he's writing a thank you letter to them, and he says this. He says, you Philippians, you know how the, in the early days of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, that's, that's where Philippi was, when I left you and went out on my missionary journey, 
no church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving except you alone. For even in Thessalonica, you sent gifts to me there for my needs several times. And not that I'm seeking the gift, but I seek, listen to this, I seek the profit that is increasing to your account. They gave, and their account is growing. How does that work? He says, the reason I ask to give, you to give, is not for my own benefit, but for yours, for your gain, the profit that's added to your account. This only works in God's economy. In, in, in the world's economy, you give money, your bank balance goes down. In God's economy, you give and your balance goes up. What does that mean? How does that work? He said, because when you give to the things of the Lord, to kingdom work, to his church and his people, and you value the things that he values, when you align your resources with his heart, his heart of generosity, you then reap an eternal reward. It's his praise it's his joy that echoes into eternity. Just like that $5 that my aunt sent me back in 1995, that spurred me on to Russia where I shared the gospel of Jesus with a young man my age for the first time in my life, him hearing it for the first time in his life, and heaven knows the impact of that. How many others have been brought into the kingdom with far less than $5? See, it's not about the mount. It's about the heart of generosity that grows and grows. Give in order to gain. Before I close, I do need to just address this practical question because maybe you, you agree, yes, we're called to be generous like, like him, but how do we decide what we give to? There's no specific command to give to the local church. Should we instead allocate our resources to other things, to needs that we see, um, to, the, to the poor, to frontier missions, or other worthy causes, and, and, and I would say yes to, and yes to, to that. But I do believe the Bible does point us to regular generous giving to your local church family. That's not the same thing as a tithe. Here's why. One reason just to give you, and there, there's a few, but I'll just give you two. Giving to the local church, it enables those of us who are called to teach and preach to continue to nourish you with the word. Paul says this in Galatians 6, verse 6. He says, let the one who is taught the word share all good things with the teacher. I think that's a reference to local church giving. The, the funds that we direct toward people who teach the gospel and those who lead in the gospel, that vocationally frees them up to focus all of their efforts on doing just that, um, to be able to serve the church family without having to divide their time elsewhere. Uh, and of course, this church and has, has been very, very generous, um, not only to me, but to the work, to kingdom work. We've been well served also by amazing volunteers who have given their time, not because they're being paid, uh, but because of their love for Jesus. Um, but those who are set aside to teach, we are instructed to look after them. And that's one reason to prioritize giving to the church. 
the second reason is this, and we see this example countless times in the New Testament. The church as a collective body uses collective wisdom uh, to direct resources where they are collectively effective. Um, you, me, we're, we're one person, one family, and we know of some needs. We see physical needs. We see spiritual needs. But we, collectively, we see a lot more. We see a lot bigger picture. Um, and so when we put our heads and our resources together, as we saw, see in the book of Acts and elsewhere, these resources can be stewarded even better so that no one is overlooked. So if you're not giving regularly to a local church, whether you're part of this one or another, um, then can I challenge you to prayerfully consider doing that? And if you need a percentage, if a percentage is helpful to you, then that's okay. But the goal isn't 10%. The, the goal is to get off the sidelines and into the game and to be a part of the family, to gain. One final incentive, and I'll close with this. You know, if Jesus sees a poor woman drop in an offering totaling a, a mere fraction of a cent, and he counts that so significant that it's recorded not once but twice in the Bible for all eternity so that every generation of Christians that followed this woman's example would be spurred on to generosity because of what she did. Like, those two small coins were infinitely valuable, and if Jesus said so himself, then it doesn't matter how much or how little you think you have to give. What you have is beautiful and indescribably valuable to him. He doesn't ask you to give what you don't have. He asks you to give what you do and what he's given you. Our aim as City Light South Church is to be joyfully generous in everything we do as individuals and as a, as a, as a church family. I want to know, do you want this heart of generosity? Do you want his heart of generosity? Remember, the, the most well-known verse in all of the Bible says this. It says that, For God so loved the world that he gave his only son all he had. He didn't give 10% of his son. He gave all he had, his one and only son, that you and me and anyone who believes would not die but have eternal life. He gave his son to us humans who were so discontent with our lot, so discontent and worried about our own limitations, but instead of scolding us, he said, all you have to do is believe and you will gain unlimited grace. So we treasure him above anything else that you're holding on to. Let's pray. Well, thank you that it is so true that no one can outgive you. That your heart of generosity is infinitely big. Lord, I do, do pray for our hearts, that you would enlarge our hearts to be generous like you with our time and our words and our money. Lord, thank you for the ways that you have already spurred on so many people in this room to be so amazingly generous. I just pray that you would grow, not that we would suffer as a result,
but that we would gain. Lord, as we come to the table today, remind us again that you are the God who gives, who held nothing back, that we might be brought into your family and have a seat at your table. Love you and thank you and pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for joining us for another message from City Light South Church. You can find out more about our church and connect with us at citylightsouth.org.au.